Welcome to the fifth bonus episode of Subsurface, Resisting Montana's Underwater Invaders. I'm Nora Sachs, the associate producer for Subsurface. Nikki Willette has been our host up until now, but today we're putting her in the hot seat to answer some lingering questions about mussels. Hey, Nikki. Hey, Nora. I can't believe there are still questions about zebra and quagga mussels after two hours of subsurface. It's just great. Just can't get enough, I guess. So let's quickly recap. In our other four episodes, we took some deep dives. First, we explored what Montana's future could look like if invasive zebra and quagga mussels take over our lakes and rivers here. And then we looked at how they spread, how to keep them from spreading, and what our options are if they do arrive. We ended by pondering some bigger existential questions about what invasive species mean and who gets to decide just who belongs and who doesn't. But that wasn't enough. And you, our listeners, had yet more questions about these elusive mussels in our midst. Let's start really basic. Why do a whole podcast about invasive mussels? That is a great question, Nora. The invasive mussels, um, they're, they're kind of the biggest threat to Montana's waterways. And Montana's rivers and lakes, they, they're one of the best parts of Montana. They're clean. They're desirable. They draw a ton of tourists. So there's this economic um, benefit attached to them. Um, and Montana is also the headwaters of one of the purest and you know, last river systems in the country that still doesn't have these invasive species. And from my point of view, it's um, it, this is a big deal. There's there's money tied to this. There's the image of Montana is wrapped up in our water. Um, and because it hasn't happened yet, we're at this point where we can still do something about it. And we noticed over the past year of reporting on invasive mussels that a lot of people still hadn't heard about them and weren't even aware that this was an issue. So we hoped that a podcast would be kind of a fun and different way to get the word out um, and kind of pull some of the reporting that we've been doing for an entire year into one place where you could just go and listen to it and learn something. Right. So it's really a statewide story. Yeah. I mean, this is something that's going to impact everyone in Montana. Well, Kurt Westenbarger sent us one of his questions. Thank you so much, Kurt. He wanted to know more about the clean, drain, dry motto. So we've heard that a lot. What does that mean exactly? Right. Clean, drain, dry is the motto that managers in Montana and kind of all over the western part of the country are using to help people remember um, when you take your boat out of the water or if you've been fishing, wearing waders, or if you're out um, kayaking or stand-up paddleboarding, all of that equipment that's been in the water, you just need to take it out, clean it off, make sure there's no weeds hanging off of it, make sure there's no critters, maybe like stuck in crevices or in the motor, for example. You clean all that stuff out, you drain any remaining water that's in it. Um, So for like a canoe, you just flip it over. For a jet ski, if you gun your motor for just a quick half second, that'll shoot any remaining water out. And then you let it dry. until it's entirely, completely dry. The thing about invasive aquatic species is they, they survive in water. So the logical thing is if you just dry them out and remove their habitat, essentially, they won't be able to survive and you won't be transporting them from one lake to another. So that's the basic premise. You clean it, you drain it, you dry it off. Right, so it's kind of suffocating them, drying them out. Exactly. And Kurt also asked about this idea that we heard about in one of the episodes of using a car wash to decontaminate a boat is that possible? 
Yeah. So the thing about using a car wash to clean off a boat is that you really want the hot water because that's what's going to kill all of the invasive species off. Managers have kind of arrived at 140 degrees Fahrenheit as the temperature that will kill most invasive species. And if you expose them to water at 140 degrees for um, I think it's like a, a minute or two, um, that should kill off all of the invasives. Um, and then they'd go down the drain of the car wash. And there's there, there's some concern there if, if, you're, if you're using a cold car wash, for example, maybe they're not dead, they're just off of the boat or the vehicle, and then they're entering into the drain system and they're going to clog up the drains and that's going to be an issue. Um, so it's really the mix of the hot water um, and the pressure to get them off of the boat or the vehicle. Um, that seems to have worked in some places. Um, I think in Montana, most of our decontamination stations are um, heated pressure washers that have this little pad underneath them that collects all of its own water and runs it through a filtration system after to clean it out. Really to dot all your I's, cross all your T's. Got it. There was one last piece to Kurt's line of inquiry. He asked, so if you don't have a boat, what can non-boating recreationists do to protect water? Do you clean your waders between lakes and streams? If you're fishing multiple drainages in one day, what can you do? Yeah, so we talked a lot about boaters in subsurface, but I mean, people fishing in different lakes or streams in the same day have the same potential to carry invasive species from one fishing spot to another. Um, the best thing to do is to, to just not use that equipment until it's fully dried out. So if you can use a different set of waders, that's great. Um, and it, it, it's also not just boaters or fishermen, there's also seaplanes. That's something we didn't talk about at all in subsurface that managers are really concerned about because a seaplane is just hanging out in a lake and, you know, that could be a lake that's infested with any number of invasive species. And it's unclear if, you know, if you start in one body of water that is infested, if the plane takes off to travel to another lake, they're not sure that the time in the air will be enough for the plane to dry off enough that it would kill off any invasive species. So managers are still trying to figure out how to work with um, seaplane groups um, so that they can they can find either regulations that make sense or policies or protocols that seaplane flyers can can use so that they're not another risk uh, along with boats and waders and everything else. Um, but that's kind of something that is the science still doesn't really have a lot to say about. Right, because they could just hop right over any inspection station or anything like that. Right. And it's not like you can block them from landing. Right. We don't know anything about how altitude affects muscles at this point. I have not come across that. <laughs> Further research. Okay, Nikki, here's a hat trick for you of very important questions. Number one, is Montana considered infested? Number two, how do people interpret these early detections followed by a year of nothing? And third, is there a time when Montana could go back to being considered muscle-free, actually? Yeah, this this is a, a loaded set of questions. So for one, yeah, Montana is considered infested. We had um, positive detections in Tiber, and then we had these suspect detections on the Canyon Ferry Reservoir and the Milk and Missouri River. So yes, those those detections make Montana infested. There's there's a line of thought that maybe these suspect detections where you know, you do a, a preliminary sampling and that comes back positive, but then you don't find them again 
or you can't find the adults, but you find villagers, which are the baby mussels, maybe there's a chance that those were brought in in the bilge water or ballast water from a boat and just kind of got dumped into Montana and we scooped those up in the samples. Any way that you interpret it, though, Either, yes, we definitely have them, we just haven't found the adult populations yet, or maybe they were brought here on some fluke. Managers, they're not making that distinction. They're they're treating it as though we are infested. And I actually talked to um, Montana's Aquatic Invasive Species Bureau Chief Tom Wolf about this directly. Um, And here's a little bit from our conversation on that point. We're just like in limbo. We're in purgatory. We don't know, and that seems to be the nature of muscle detect- detections in the West. I mean, when we see these microscopic muscles, um, many times th- they're they're seen once and not seen again. Um, but you can't be sure, and and it just takes persistent looking um, to be sure that you're you're uh, you don't have a reproducing population out there. So managers like Tom um, and pretty much everyone else in the state are treating the detections and the suspect detections as, yes, this is the real deal. Um, And to answer your third question, Nora, um, number three, is there a time when Montana will ever go back to being considered muscle-free? yeah, there there are some guidelines for that from the Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, if we go for five years without any positive mussel detections, we will be taken off of the infested waters list. Um, and that, like Tom Wolf said, that is something that happens a lot in the Western states. And we're still scientists are still trying to figure out kind of why that is. A lot of water bodies seem suitable for the mussels, but then a population doesn't fully make it, like we heard about in Lake George in episode four. Um, And, you know, they haven't been here before. So there's just a lot of ifs and questions that we we just don't know yet. It's interesting to to think that we could return to a muscle-free state. Yeah, it it, will just take years and years of vigilance and a lot of monitoring and um, people, you know, being really diligent about the clean, drain, dry and taking it really seriously. So we have four more years to go, basically, to see if we could get back to muscle-free. That's exactly right. In episode three, Shell Games, we heard about lots of boat inspections, and the money Montana legislators are funneling into the Aquatic Invasive Species Program. Now, is all that just because of mussels? No. Mussels are kind of the poster child of the moment for aquatic invasive species prevention and um, monitoring. But all of the policies that Montana has in place are also meant to protect the water from other invasive species, some that we already have and some that we don't have. The ones that we do have, um, like um, Eurasian water milfoil, this is an aquatic plant that if you break off even just like an inch of the top of the plant, it will clone itself. And it can just, it takes over lakes really, really quickly and it forms these really thick mats. So you can't really drive a motorboat through it anymore. You can't see the fish. You can't really swim in it because it's unpleasant. Um, And there are some lakes in Montana that already have that one. Managers in Montana are also thinking about things that aren't here yet. And I, I actually got to see some of these invasive species when I was in Minnesota and Wisconsin. It's like out of another world. There's this one called Starry Stonewort that looks, um, it's like green algae hair with these pretty white six-pointed, um, they're not quite flowers because it's, it's like an algae, but um, when it grows and it like really populates, 
it's it's it would be like trying to swim through angel hair pasta underwater. It's just it's so it takes over everything and it's so gross. There's this other little crustacean called the spiny water flea. And it's it's large enough so that you can almost see it. But this one, it gets stuck on fishing lines, and it just kind of, like, gums up all the works for fishermen. Um, there's this eel called the sea lamprey. You might have heard of it before. It's called a slime eel. Yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah, this one is totally disgusting. It's um, It's like a foot and a half long or so, and it has this little round mouth with teeth all around it. And they latch onto fish and kind of, like, suck the blood and guts out of them. So, I mean, this is stuff that, like, honestly, I don't want this in Montana waters. Um, and the policies that Montana has in place right now, that clean, drain, and dry, all of those guidelines are meant to keep out stuff like that that we might not have even heard about, but Montana managers are, they're, like, talking with people back east. And they're like, holy crap, this is, like, coming our way. Those are kind of the exotic invasive species. But we we actually have a lot of invasive species that are, I think a lot of Montanans would think of as natural Montana species, like lake trout. Man- That's a huge one. Yeah. And Flathead, right? Flathead Lake, Yellowstone Lake. Managers have been trying for years to get them out of those lakes. Um, and even the walleye or smallmouth bass, some of these are, you know. Sport fisheries? Yeah. Yeah. These are these are sport fisheries um, that a lot of Montanans really enjoy. But at the same time, they, they were introduced. They're not native here. Um, so... Yeah, all of all of the policies, like we're talking about them because of these mussels, but there's this whole this whole slew of other species that are on managers' minds that we we also could have easily done subsurface all about. And so none of the measures being taken to prevent mussels, like they will all only potentially help keep out other aquatic invasives. Yeah, that's the idea. Episode three, Shell Games, was really juicy, and we heard a lot about what Montana is doing. But how does Montana stack up to other states right now? Well, in Wisconsin, one of the educational outreach guys told me that instead of using regulations and fines and consequences to change boater behavior, um, they're looking at social science and what social science can tell them about how how people are inspired to change their behavior. Um, So we're going to hear a little bit from Tim Campbell talking about this. He's from the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, and he's their um, Aquatic Invasive Species Educational Outreach Coordinator. Every invasion is human-mediated, and to me that means that every invasion is preventable. If it's human behavior moving things around, people can change their behavior. People have stopped smoking. People change their diets to lose weight so people can change their behavior to stop the spread of invasive species and so theoretically every invasion is preventable and I think that attitude towards AIS prevention is really important and I think that can lead to new partnerships making people feel empowered that what they do matters and that you know any little effort that they can take to help prevent the spread of invasive species I think with that mindset they'll do it Um, I think sometimes when you have a really regulatory approach, that responsibility might lie or people might think it lies on somebody else to take action. But um, if you really come to it at the every invasion is preventable and I can do something about it approach, I think that's really setting you up for success in the long term with invasive species management. So states like that have had to come up with different ways of... um, 
of incentivizing people to change their behavior because they don't have the regulatory mechanisms in place that would help, you know, kind of like a carrot and a stick kind of thing. Now, here's something I've been personally wondering about. I like to cook. Can you eat zebra mussels? <laughs> um, yes, in theory. Um, this is something that Joey Timonello, the philosopher that we heard from in episode four, Active Resistance, he told me about something called the invasivore movement. It's Whoa. Yeah, it's kind of like a locavore diet where you only eat locally sourced foods. Um, but with invasivores, you're only eating invasive species. Delicious. Yeah. So um, Joey was kind enough to send me a video. Um, I think this is more of a joke than an actual management tactic. Um, but here's here's some kids out on a boat. Um, it looks like it's a group of high schoolers just kind of like egging each other on to see if they'll eat an invasive zebra mussel. So you're going to eat it? Hold on, Jeff. Yeah, we got to put some hot sauce on it. Obviously, we're on the radio, so you can't see this. But the, the piece of meat, the actual muscle meat that he's holding, is smaller than a pea. It's really, it's not that much meat. And something else that's a little concerning about zebra or quagga mussels and eating them is that these are filter feeders. So anything that's in the water, these guys are ingesting it. And that includes, like, toxins or bacteria that can get you sick. So this is not, managers have not identified this as a sustainable option for cutting back on zebra and quagga mussel populations. But, you know, mixed with hot sauce, maybe it's good once. Give it the old college try, I guess. Nikki, you spent two weeks exploring lakes that have zebra mussels in the Midwest, and you're a bit of a water bug yourself, as I understand. What kind of impact did reporting this series have on you personally? A lot of times managers and scientists, they really want to keep the mussels out. So they'll tell you the worst case scenario. And when I went to the lakes in Minnesota and Wisconsin, I was surprised that they didn't really live up to that image that I had in my mind. Things weren't destroyed in the way that I expected. Um, but then you hear of people like Matt Hipsch, who we heard from in episode one. He's the guy whose entire harbor was filled in with the mussel shells. Um and he's going to bear that for forever. Like, that is not going to change ever for him, for his kids, for his grandkids. Um, and the thought of that happening anywhere in Montana, uh, I, I, I really I don't want them here. And it's so simple. If we just pay a tiny bit more attention and if everyone just kind of just is aware of, of how their actions impact the landscape, I think I, I think that we can hold them off at least until science catches up, um, it, it made me it made me simultaneously um, really scared for what the future could look like, um, but also really empowered to know that you know we've been, we've been doing a good job so far, and if we just do a little bit better, like this was a wake up call for us these detections that we had in 2016, um, and maybe we can just hang on a little bit longer and keep Montana's waterways as clean and clear as they are. Thanks so much, Nikki Willette, and thanks for listening to Subsurface, Resisting Montana's Underwater Invaders. I'm Nora Sachs, the associate producer. Nikki Willette is our reporter and producer. Eric Whitney is our editor and executive producer. Josh Burnham is our web editor. And a special thanks to Beth Ann Ostein for producing this episode. Subsurface is a production of Montana Public Radio with financial support from the Solutions Journalism Network, a nonprofit organization dedicated to rigorous and compelling reporting about responses to social problems. Learn more at our website, mtpr.org.